Now, we typically take more debt on at the property level, but our line of credit on our fund is fully paid off. We're sitting on a fair amount of liquid cash. And we do that because we believe there's good deals coming, just as there were good deals at pretty good discounts during COVID-19. And so you have to be ready. So Midlock, we have our fund structure. Now, if it's too large for our fund or we think that it's just too big of a piece, you know, we behind the scenes may offer a small co-investment raise to our fund investors primarily, very common amongst, you know, real estate or private equity firms. The industry terms of sidecar, it's a motorcycle term for that little thing on the side that people ride in. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the fourth season of Ready to Scale. I'm your host, Ellie Perlman. Real estate investing is not rocket science, but it's not a fairy tale either. It's an incredible investment vehicle that builds and grows wealth. I have done it, and this is why so many of the wealthiest people in America and in the world, actually, invest in real estate as well. Listen in every week to learn about all the different real estate asset classes which strategies experienced and successful investors use to live their best lives and the processes to do it. Don't reinvent the wheel. Just listen in every week to grow your knowledge along with me and to move your finances to a place where you can live an extraordinary life. This show is sponsored by my company, Blue Lake Capital, where we help passive investors grow their wealth through large multifamily investments and funds. To learn more about my company and invest in with me, visit www.bluelake-capital.com. Welcome to Ready to Scale Season 4. Let's get started. Hey guys, welcome to yet another episode of Ready to Scale. My name is Jeanette Robinson, Director of Investor Relations with Blue Lake Capital. Joining us today is Andy Sinclair. Andy is the CEO of Midlock Investment Partners. He has participated historically in over $2 billion worth of real estate transactions. He's the former VP of private equity with MLG Capital and actually started his career off as a broker. He graduated from Marquette University with a BBA in finance in real estate and economics, and he still serves on their alumni real estate advisory board even today. So Andy, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me, Jeanette. Glad to be a part of it. Yeah, definitely. Where are you joining us from today? I am joining you from our Minneapolis office here, so it's a balmy 30 degrees out today. I can empathize. I think we're a toasty 34 degrees here in Boston today, so winter has arrived, that is for sure. It certainly has. <laughs> well, I would love to kind of bring listeners up to speed on some of the things you and I were talking about before we even pressed record. Which is, you know, your group is a really interesting group. Midlock really takes kind of some unique strategies and really puts them into application in a way that I think is different than a lot of other companies that I see in the space. You know, there's a lot of players, we're all in the same sandbox, but it seems like you guys have really found a very strategic way to position yourself, you know, kind of in the, this capital markets game, if you will, right? And so, you know, for starters, can you talk to us about what type of assets does your group invest in and in which market? Sure. So Midlock at our core is we're a real estate investment management firm. You know, we function in a multitude of states. And, and as you've alluded to, based in the Midwest, we've got three offices across the Midwest in Milwaukee, Minneapolis, and Chicago. And we've got employees stationed around those three offices. 
which is a little atypical from a lot of teams that might have an office in LA or Phoenix or Florida, wherever it might be. So we definitely have Midwest roots. Actually, the MID and Midlock stands for the Midwest. And from our standpoint, though, we invest across the spectrum, it, mainly in what is the, the main food groups of real estate. So we invest in uh, apartments, industrial warehouses, strip retail or necessity-based retail, and occasionally a little bit of extra would be office or self-storage. But for the most part, 80% of what we do is either apartments or industrial warehouses, which is kind of like your, your bread and butter of the real estate spectrum. But definitely unique that we don't do just one type of investments. Uh, I think that was common about 30, 40 years ago, and the markets really moved to really more of a single asset approach. Yeah, but I think the diversification is great. I'm sure it comes with some challenges, which we'll kind of dig into a little bit later in the show that I'm curious about, you know, but I still know that diversifying is very important to investors. And I think it's, you know, wonderful that you guys are offering them, you know, that type of portfolio options. So that's great. Now I'm curious too about, you know, your focus on the Midwest. There's a lot of attention right now, you know, across a lot of common markets, right? Texas, Florida, Georgia, the Carolinas, the Sun Belt as a whole, you know, we play in that space a lot. But you guys also really have a lot of passion for the Midwest. So out of curiosity, you know, what would you share with listeners is uh, some unique market attributes or factors that they may overlook that the Midwest offers? Well, first off, you know, while it might be the Midwest technically, but we refer to it as the mid-best. <laughs> so it's definitely a great place to be, one of the best places to be. And as mentioned, uh, as we were kind of doing our pre-show and prepping for this, you know, throughout my career, I actually moved, started my career in brokerage and moved out to California, covered the whole West Coast, Denver, Phoenix, Las Vegas, a lot of Sunbelt markets on the West Coast side. And before I co-founded Midlock, focused on a lot of Sunbelt markets like Texas, Florida, Georgia, the Carolinas. So done definitely about a billion dollars of deals in the Sunbelt, and they're very, very good markets, but they're different from the Midwest. You know, sometimes the Midwest gets mischaracterized as the Rust Belt or, you know, flyover country. I think countries that people don't associate it with people and thriving job centers, but there's a lot of great underlying statistics of what's going on in, in the economy as well as why people live here. You know, if you only lived here from May to October 31st, Midwest would be the best place you've ever lived. I had a roommate from Austin, Texas when I was in college, and his first six months, he goes, this is the best place I've ever lived. I don't know why I didn't I live there. Now, that lasted until the first snowfall. The Midwest, while it doesn't have the sex appeal of some of the markets like Austin or Dallas or Atlanta or some of the traditional Sunbelt markets, what you gain is very solid job fundamentals, very good work ethic and the employment base that's there, as well as you're usually buying at a better evaluation. And I would argue that there's still actually really good underlying growth. It may not be the growth that Phoenix or Austin, Texas has with, you know, one, two, three people, you know, every day moving there or every hour, <laughs> but you still have growth and population growth in areas people would not expect. Interesting, interesting. Now, what really kind of, how did you initially get grabbed into the market? How did it attract you? What was kind of the first deal that you, you looked at in the area? Or what was kind of the, the epiphany or the light bulb, if you will? Well, I've been investing in the Midwest as a professional investor here for about 10 years. So, you know, the first deal I worked on actually was not too far from where my office is in Minneapolis. So just down the street, this is a true story. This was well, office is a very small part of my portfolio. It was a foreclosure back from the remnants of the financial crisis, who actually was owned by a publicly traded REIT who had thrown the keys back. 
And uh, at the time, the lender wanted $40 per square foot. I don't care if it's apartments or commercial, 40 bucks a square foot is really <laughs> cheap. <laughs> and so it's not a lot. And I'll never forget this. Now it was freezing cold and we went to go tour it. And the first thing we learned was there was an accountant who was on the first floor and he had a sign that said, if you're reading this sign, you need to go up the stairs across the hallway, back down the stairs. Somebody had walled in the hallway. Can you imagine an apartment building or an office building where you can't get to the office? You've got to go up the stairs or you've got to go out in the freezing cold and walk around the back door. Wow. And so that was uh, one of the first deals I worked on in the Midwest. Bought it for $40 a square foot, later sold it for $100 a square foot. And the reason that I think that deal was misunderstood is, you know, in the heyday and the speculation from 07 to, you know, call 2008, is what happened was this public read had paid top dollar. They had paid top valuation dollar as an institutional asset, all glass, office building, very beautiful, operated by a credit tenant as the, as the one who leased the building. And they eventually threw the keys back. They said, our basis is too high. And we paid $40 a square foot for it and then later sold it for 100 bucks. And what was missing in that was the occupancy in the market was 90%. That means people wanted to lease here. But yet we had a building at the time that was 30% occupied. And whether it's commercial or apartments, you're always looking for fundamentals of why people want to be there. And I think that's the core message of the Midwest is you're certainly going to have better growth in the Sun Belt. But I think if you look at markets like Minneapolis, Columbus, Ohio, you know, even parts of Detroit or Grand Rapids, Michigan, you've got a lot of really good fundamentals that people just kind of forget about because it's flyover country. Uh, maybe we should keep them out, Jeanette. There's some good deals. To <laughs> yeah, don't tell everybody too much, right? <laughs> Interesting. All right. Well, I appreciate you know, kind of sharing that and highlighting that. You know, when you're talking about these fundamentals, essentially, which of these fundamentals do you feel are the most, you know, significant for that market or that area that people are just, you know, glazing over? Yeah, I think the number one thing people glaze over in real estate is they're so focused on the growth. You know, they're so focused on how many people are moving there a day. And what happens, and it's no different than the stock market, if, you know, tech companies might be trading at a, uh, I always laugh at this, they're trading at a 20 or 40 times multiple of revenue. You're like, whoa, what happened to trading at a multiple of income? Revenue doesn't mean you make money, it just means you sell a lot of stuff. And I think people get really hung up in real estate. They're really focused on what the fundamentals are of the growth, when they really should be looking at what the fundamentals are of their income. Because ultimately that income helps us arrive what's known as a cap rate. You know, the cap rate gives us an indication of what value could be. You know, in the Sunbelt markets, and, and I will admit, Midlock, we own in some of the markets, such as Florida and Texas, we own some deals, even though our headquarters is based for the Midwest, kind of two thirds, one third. Typically, our values are lower, a little more stable, not as exposed to the volatility that we might see in Texas or Florida or Georgia. And so that's what we like about it is typically we can get a better discount, better value. And I think that's what people have to look at. They have to remove themselves from the sex appeal and say, is there stability in this market? Is supply and demand in balance? You know, the people that want to live and work here and are there employers that want to put more jobs here, whether it be remotely or not? 
Yeah, definitely good advice. And I know that's something that we always take into consideration too when we're evaluating, you know, which markets to, you know, do business in. So speaking of doing business, something else that I thought was very unique about, you know, your investment group is you've taken a little bit of a niche strategy that I don't see very often. And essentially, if I understand correctly, your group focuses on coming in as a capital partner in deals that are really targeted to be between five to $50 million and just right within that niche. Is that correct? That's correct. And what is the reasoning behind all of that? Yeah, I'm glad you asked that. Let me break that down a little bit. So Midlock plays and what's the small to middle market, which I think just sounds like financial jargon. What that means in, in real money is that typically it's between $5 million on the low end up to about 50, 55 million on the high end. And by the way, probably similar to you, Jeanette, I've got some friends that work for some big insurance companies and they said, well, it really is 75 million. And what that means is that 75 million and below, it's too inefficient for insurance companies, Wall Street groups, pension funds. You know, when they have to put out a billion dollars a month to buy real estate, if they buy 10 deals at 5 million, that's only a $50 million purchase as opposed to if they just buy one building or two buildings at 50 million. So they just don't have the time. Now, the difference is, though, when you're a large group, you get what's known as capital pressure, which means they have to put money out to keep it working to generate some type of return. Well, that's not always a good thing. If you're forced to put money out, you're likely not going to find the best deal. And the other side of the spectrum, that kind of zero to $5 million, the reason that you can find good values everywhere, but the reason it can be a little difficult is it's just small enough that any doctor, lawyer, group of friends, whatever it might be, can can buy it. And they don't really sell on fundamentals at that point. They really base on, does that person like the property? And do they perceive there's a good value? So on the two spectrums, you have a lot of buyers with a lot of money that are kind of price indeterminate. And in this middle space between $5 million and $50 million, there's good deals. That's where mistakes occur. And that's where there's dislocation in the market. And what I always mention to our investors is so often you might think in that middle space, it's probably some mom and pop that made a mistake, you know, or they're over their skis, couldn't, couldn't hang, right? And that's sometimes true. But, you know, for instance, we did one of our most successful deals I was referencing in our prep call was out in Boulder, Colorado, in the Boulder submarket. And that was an $18 million deal that we stole practically from a publicly traded REIT that was just trying to sell it to meet their quarterly earnings. And so you get mistakes from both groups, but in that mid space, that's where the money's made. One last thing I want to add that you brought up and what Midlock makes us unique, Midlock is a real estate private equity firm. What that could mean in just simpler terms is we're an investor with really good operators, management teams, general partners, or GPs. A lot of groups, I would say mainly institutional groups, they do our business model, but they only do it for large deals, hundreds of millions, big, big deals, but they don't play in this small to middle cap space. So for that reason, I always say Midlock, we're a family office alternative. We are a real estate company that happens to be in the money business and partnering up with good people. Instead of a money group out of LA or New York, trying to figure out what this real estate thing even is. Yeah. And that's actually a great segue too into kind of talking about the process here. So I love what you're talking about because it's really about 
recognizing that the real win in real estate exists in the right partnerships. It, it, it's really a team effort and it's a team victory. And, you know, coming in as a capital partner is a very unique part of, you know, kind of your, your business plan and finding the right, you know, groups to partner with. So what is the process, you know, that you take to evaluate what type of partnerships you're going to structure and with who that's going to work in the best interest of kind of, you know, your investors' preferences? Yeah, it's a great question. And so, so often, you know, there's a lot of groups that want to be in real estate. And a lot of groups, I would argue, are very good operators, you know, running the day-to-day real estate. From a midlock perspective, we're looking for a few things. We're really looking for an alignment of goals. You know, that could be, you know, what's our business plan? That's our big thing at Midlock. We say, because we're a value investor, which what that means is we pay for a dollar, we try to pay 80 cents, we make 20 cents profit, right? Instead of uh, being uh, betting on black or betting on all the growth where you pay a dollar five for that same dollar, hoping it's worth a dollar 25, right? So you still make 20 cents. The question is how you go about it. So when it comes to partners, the first thing we try to say is, are we aligned in what the business plan is, right, to make that money? You know, there are two to three ways to unlock that value. It could be buying at a discount. It could be raising the rent on stuff. One thing I mentioned on our prep call, you know, one thing that's, uh, are we aligned in trying to go get some green incentives? You know, some are readily available, some are not. And are, how are we going to work together? So that's the first thing. You want to share a vision with your partnerships. Some partnerships don't work out from the beginning, just like there might be unhappy marriages. And that's why you try to hash that out before. Um, you also want to make sure that your partner has a track record. And then ultimately, I think the most important thing is comes down to operations, right? Can your partner or the partnership operate the building? Anybody can buy real estate if you have money. But I think what it comes down to and whether you're a self-starter trying to grow your operations or a professional trying to refine them, you want to make sure you have the right people and the right tools to run the building effectively. Because if you don't or aren't willing to spend time to refine it, it, it's a lonely road. So those are things we're looking in partners. And this is the number one thing we spend time on outside of does the real estate even make sense to buy? Yeah, interesting. And that was actually, you know, one of the things I was going to ask you is, you know, when you take into consideration that you're you're investing in multiple types of assets, you know, the management challenges for each of those types of assets has got to be, I'm assuming, wildly different one to the other. And I'm assuming, if I understand correctly, that your your way to work around that is, you know, by selecting the the key types of partners that will have the knowledge base to be able to kind of, you know, manage and oversee those, you know, unique different investments that you have, you know, from industrial to retail to multifamily. I'm curious, you know, given your experience having done this for a number of years, what have you been surprised to see our challenges that are unique to each one of those assets? Sure. You know, I think one thing that makes Midlock different is between us and our affiliates, you know, we own and are vertically integrated as a management company, development company, however you want to refer to it, across a billion dollars worth of real estate. And, and mainly in our two home markets, which is Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and then Minneapolis, St. Paul, Minnesota, right? So we've got good base, who's construction people, development people, property management, accounting teams, right? And so we are a real estate company at our core. Now, we also, as you've mentioned, we're a capital partner. So when it comes to leveraging us, and one of the best ways, and one thing I respect and love about our business, it's very communal. You have a joint, I think, appreciation to grow together. I don't feel that way in finance and like in, for instance, Wall Street, where it's, 
if I win, someone else has to lose. And so when it comes to managing that across the spectrum is we have a good base from our own management portfolio. Uh, and sometimes we go to our partners and we say, okay, given our experience, here's how we think we should look at insurance. You know, even though we're a capital partner, we're bringing value or the deal I mentioned out in Colorado, our partner wasn't aware that there were green incentives, which on an $18 million deal, the green incentives total $1.4 million. That's a huge amount of $18 million deal, mm-hmm. almost 10% of the total deal size, right? And that's a benefit to all the investors, not just Midlock. And so we try to bring best practices, but we also benefit to your point on local operators and property management that operate in their local markets. And I say most real estate groups are really good at you know one of a few things. It's usually leasing, management, or property management or asset management, whatever way that might take, development, and some combination of those skills. And so I think having a good local partner, even though we are vertically integrated in our home markets, you know, we want to be an asset to them just as much as they're an asset to management for us. But it certainly helps, you know, uh, owning real estate across the country and being able to share best practices. Yeah, it definitely does. Uh, no one knows everything and anybody who thinks they do, I don't really want to work with them. <laughs> uh, no, I have to say, I'm curious also, you know, when it comes to your investor base, are you, you know, making these investments through essentially a fund? Are your investors coming in through a fund? And when you're talking to your investors about, you know, such diverse assets, how do you usually kind of position the different offerings as you bring them to investors? And, and how are you attracting investors in so that they can have a level of confidence that regardless of the partnership or the asset that you're talking about, you know, that they're still, you know, essentially in good hands. So I'm curious, of course, naturally as a director of investor relations, right, coming from investor relations, I want to know how you sell this to investors, you know? By the way, I'm still working on this part, Jeanette, but I, I heard this quote once and I really believe it. If you just had 10 billionaire friends, you don't really need a lot of investors. I'm still working to find a few more of those, <laughs> you know, into the B type category. But no, as we started off the call, Midlock is an investment manager. We operate multiple funds with liquid and ready capital. I'm actually very proud of this stat. Right now, Midlock and our current fund, we're only 35% debt. Now, we typically take more debt on at the property level, but our line of credit on our fund is fully paid off. We're sitting on a fair amount of liquid cash. And we do that because we believe there's good deals coming, just as there were good deals at pretty good discounts during COVID-19. And so you have to be ready. So Midlock, we have our fund structure. Now, if it's too large for our fund or we think that it's just too big of a piece, you know, we behind the scenes may offer a small co-investment raise to our fund investors primarily, very common amongst, you know, real estate or private equity firms. The industry terms of sidecar, it's a motorcycle term for that little thing on the side that people ride in. Never actually ridden one. It's, uh, it's on my bucket <laughs> list to do that. But yeah, we usually will offer a small co-investment. For Midlock, though, you know, it's rare that we do the small end of the range, but a million dollars. In fact, we did this here over a two-week span. Next week, we're putting out about $19 million, which is a little more on our high end, you know, for our range. And then last week, we just closed a deal in Greensboro, North Carolina, right next to the airport, a warehouse deal, and we put out a million dollars. So we run the spectrum. But if it's certainly closer to the higher end, the range will offer a co-investment vehicle alongside or a sidecar alongside our funds. Very interesting. Very interesting. Okay, great. You know, so last but not least, you know, before we kind of jump into what I call the lightning round questions, I think 
you know, one of the biggest takeaways that we can have from our discussion today is is the fact that there's many ways to do real estate successfully, right? To be in the game successfully. I'm curious, you know, what advice would you give kind of your younger self if looking back now on your entire career and the entire way you've been, been able to structure out, you know, your deals and your portfolios, what did you what did you miss early on, you know, that you did learn later on that you wish you'd kind of maybe learned sooner? <laughs> You know, one generic piece, and I, I believe everyone would tell you this, is find people that want to help you grow. Whether it's, you know, a GP that helps you teach you as an investor or your real estate operator that wants to grow and become a better operator or a bigger operator, find mentors. So I actually, I brought this up in some other interviews I've done. I started at the very level doing brokerage leasing. I hung leasing signs in storefronts or office fronts or whatever it might be. And I used to walk through the tape recorder asking if the space was vacant. So I got really humbled. I started at the very bottom of this industry. And I think the only piece I would have added, I don't feel like I got enough property management experience. I've done just about everything in real estate other than I've had partners who've done a little more property management than I am. So I would find a way if it's a job for you and you're looking to grow in your real estate career, or if you're an operator, try to get exposure to all parts. You don't have to be an expert in every part, but find a way to grow. You know, if you can grow your skill set, let's say it's taxes, as a real estate's known for having a lot of great tax benefits. Well, if you can grow your knowledge 10%, you know, in taxes or incentives with green incentives in your local market, you might be able to make 20 or 30 times as much money, you know, if you 10% in and maybe you can two or three X that out, that's incremental knowledge is worth it. So don't ever stop learning. Don't pigeonhole yourself. I really feel when people are static and not learning, one piece of advice we talk about, and I ask every person I interview this question, do you want to be a real estate investor or is this just a job to you? If you don't want to be an investor actively and take joy in owning buildings and working with partners, then this is not a, a field for you. It should be, you should go somewhere else where you can clock in and clock out. And that's what I love about our field. And I'm not done learning myself, by the way. I still have a lot to go. Just because I'm the CEO of Midlock doesn't mean I'm done learning either. Yeah, very good. Very good advice and very true. I can't agree with you more. And even if you don't want to learn, you have to learn, you know, because real estate is forever changing. There's always, you know, all kinds of either circumstances or, you know, revisions to even laws. I mean, I find it impossible to not have to learn all the time. You know, you you have to. That's just what it demands. But I do enjoy it tremendously. And, and I think that's probably a common denominator amongst pretty much everybody in the space is at the end of the day, it's fun. And it, it adds to feeling alive and being really engaged on a really passionate level with what you do you know, every day. So I, I love it. And I think it's great that you're emphasizing, you know, that those are some of, some of the underlying benefits I think people don't realize come with the industry. Totally. Yeah. I agree. Yeah. Awesome. All right. Well, we have arrived to what I call the lightning round questions. I ask all of our guests this. So are you ready? Let's do it. All right. So in the midst of all of this, do you actually have a hobby? <laughs> I, I do, but I could always use a few more. <laughs> and what is it? I'm sure like a lot of people, I have a close-knit friend group. We play fantasy football. I'm a nerd for sports statistics <laughs> and obviously a very avid reader. So actually last weekend, I finished a book and already started a new one, updated my Kindle. 
Though I will tell you, I, I do work close to six to seven days a week, so I could use a few more hobbies in my life. Yeah, I can appreciate that sentiment. I have a little bit of that same challenge myself, but that's all right. What is something that most people don't know about you? Oh, well, uh, I'll give you one that could have been my hobby, but I'm going to bring it back here. So while maybe a little chubby as a person, I've done four marathons and one Ragnar. So I always joke, I'm the chubby fit runner. You see it on the side of the road. So I've done four. I've trained for five, which is a Ragnar, which is about 24 miles, about two miles short of a marathon. So you know, always looking to stay active and increase my own fitness level on uh, my team right now. I, I haven't quite gone the trend. They did buy me one. They're really into these new things called the whoop <laughs> watches. So that's the new health trend that's going around. I think Willie Walker, Walker Dunlop is a, a big proponent of that as well. Hey, interesting. I'm behind the times. I didn't know about the whoop, I guess is what it's called. <laughs> <laughs> Nice. All right. And actually, this this one should be pretty easy for you to answer because you just alluded to it. So what book do you highly recommend that people include in their library? Oh, that's a great question. I'll give you the last book I finished, which was about 15 years ago. I always find it fascinating how people think. So I just finished a book that's going back about 15 years in time, which is All In by John Mack. He is the retired CEO of Morgan Stanley. So found it super insightful, did not realize he was a son of a pair of immigrants. So super inspiring and lived obviously through the crisis of the financial crisis. I do read a little more nonfiction. But I think if somebody's looking to get better, I think the best book for business, not real estate specific, it's a great podcast or audible book, I should say, is Quench Your Thirst by Jim Cook, which is the founder uh, of Sam Adams, the beer company. So if you're into growing yourself as a business leader, highly recommended having a cold beverage and listening to that book on Audible. Interesting, interesting. Sam Adams is, of course, all the rage out here in Boston. So I've got to get in the know. Yeah. All right. Awesome. And here at Blue Lake, one of the things that we really try to encourage our investors to do is, you know, to live an extraordinary life. You know, it's not always about money. It's really about what that money does for you, your family, your life. So what is your advice for building an extraordinary life? That's a great question. And I think my advice would be find things you enjoy doing and don't wait until the end of your life, retirement to get there. So one of the things I enjoy doing is, is running, riding my bike, and also doing some travel with my wife. And so my wife and I, we try to pick one or two spots a year. You know, travels obviously cost some money, but one thing I'm a big believer on the travel side is if you have time or money, you actually should take time because you'll find the most inefficient but cost-effective way to get somewhere. So for instance, my wife and I on our list, we've never been to Puerto Rico. And so we think there's a lot of great culture there, but don't wait until the end. You know, I unfortunately had a parent pass away from cancer when I was in high school. So mm. I don't think similar to you, you should wait until the end of your life to start doing the things and living now. It's great advice. I'll actually throw one last bonus piece of advice. I tell this to every person we pay a bonus to, and I actually tell it to my investors when we give them a big distribution. I think you should take a huge chunk of the money that came out and do something absolutely without regard, not smart with it. Whether that's <laughs> doing skydiving. Every time I give someone a bonus, I say, all right, I want to know you spent like half this money a little recklessly, but something for yourself. You know, whether that's skydiving, scuba lessons, a trip. I usually catch people off guard the first time. They're like, wait, what do you mean? Should I be like reinvesting this bonus? <laughs> 
On the second bonus, I agree. But on the first one, have a little fun and treat yourself. That's great. That's great advice. I'm glad that you do that. Yeah, definitely. And it's odd because it's actually, we actually require the encouragement sometimes, you know, I think that we get so caught up in working towards our financial goals and, you know, focus, focus, focus. So I think it's great that you say that. That's wonderful. All right. Now, last but not least, if our guests want to get in touch with you, how can they contact you? They have a very simple email. They can give, they can shoot me an email, which is Andy, Andy Y at Midlock, which is M-I-D-L-O-C-H. It's an H in that, just like the Loch Ness Monster. So just Andy at Midlock.com. Shoot me a line. Happy to connect with you and would love to meet you. And thank you so much for hosting us and bringing us to into your sphere with your clients. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for joining us as well. I think that You know, hopefully the listeners found value in this. There's so many ways that we can partner together for success. And I think, you know, keeping that attitude and that uh, being open to that is extremely important. And I think that also understanding, you know, the different markets uh, and the different strengths that they have and the different types of assets, you know, that people can take into consideration. This is all part of what makes real estate investing great. And we don't need to be limiting our options for any reason. So thank you, Andy. It was great to have you on the show. Yeah, likewise. Thanks for hosting me and look forward to connecting more with anyone who listens. We'll be sure to include your contact info in the show notes. So guys, thanks so much for joining us today. As always, we really appreciate you checking in. Please make sure to like, rate, and review the show and let us know what you'd like to hear more of. Until then, be bold, be strong, and keep moving forward. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.